And good afternoon, everyone. My name's Julie Halls, and I'm the record specialist for registered designs here at the National Archive. People wouldn't necessarily think of coming to the archives to research design, but in fact, we hold design resources of national and international importance, covering the early years of Queen Victoria's reign through to 1991. The registered designs are designs that were copyrighted under a series of Acts of Parliament from 1839 onwards. And as part of the registration process, applicants had to submit two copies of their designs. Each was stamped with an individual registered design number. One was returned to the copyright holder, and the other would be pasted into an enormous leather-bound volume like the ones that you see here, and retained by the Designs Registry, which was originally at Somerset House in London. The Designs Registry was part of the Board of Trade, so because these designs were government records, they eventually came to the National Archives for safekeeping. We now have almost three million designs that were registered for copyright between 1839 and 1991. Today I'll talk about the historical context of the designs, which was rooted in concerns about the quality of British design and the formation of the design reform movement, and how we can see the types of designs that gave the reformers cause for concern as well as examples of their own work. I'll also try to give an idea of the huge variety of designs that we hold. The records are divided into registers, which give the name and address of the copyright holder, known as the proprietor, the registered design number and date of registration, and sometimes a brief description of the object being registered. Alongside the registers are the volumes of representations. The representations are drawings, photographs, samples and sometimes whole objects like gloves or hats that were submitted at the time of registration, each of which has a design number corresponding to the register entry. The representations range from samples and sometimes original designs by well-known names like William Morris or Coco Chanel through to ordinary everyday objects that people would have used in the home or textiles they would have used for their clothing or furnishings. The registered designs came about as a result of concerns in the first half of the 19th century about the quality of British design and its ability to compete in the international markets for decorative items for the home. The poor quality of British design was attributed to mass production, which fed a demand for novelty on the part of the general public. This led to a plethora of different styles being produced. Rococo, Gothic and Classical styles were all popular and were sometimes all combined in the same item. Piracy of designs was also a major concern. and Manufacturers were reluctant to invest in paying for skilled designers when their work would be copied almost immediately and the copies sold on more cheaply. There was a generally held belief that the problems in the markets could be solved through aesthetic reform. The recommendations of a select committee set up in 1835 to look into the issues led to the establishment of a museum of design, later to become the V&A, where people could go to see examples of both good and bad, or as the reformer said, correct and incorrect design, as well as improving access to museums and galleries across the social classes. The Government School of Design, now the Royal College of Art, was set up in Kensington in 1837 and run by the Board of Trade. By the end of the century, there are about 150 such schools across the country. 
The third recommendation, a system of copyright for ornamental designs, was implemented in 1839, which is where the registered designs come into the picture. The drive to improve design became known as the design reform movement, and the designs at the National Archives contain plenty of examples of both designs that were disapproved of by the reformers and examples of designs that follow their precepts. The civil servant Henry Cole and his circle in South Kensington strove to establish a framework of rules applied to design which were didactic to say the least. Cole's exhibition at the Museum of Marlborough House, later the B&A, called False Principles in Decoration, illustrated where British manufacturers were going wrong. The chief of vices was the direct imitation of nature. Another faux pas was to mix different styles within one design, as in this furniture fabric, which has Spanish bullfighting scenes and a chintz design mixed together. The wallpaper, which is imitating metal and also has a 3D effect, is deemed dishonest because it's pretending to be something it's not. <laughs> Decoration of an object should be true to the nature of the object. What appears to be a stuffed fox does not reflect the nature of a footstool. As well as holding examples of the kinds of designs the reformers condemned, the National Archives also holds many examples of the work of the design reformers themselves, including Augustus Pugin, Owen Jones, William Morris, Christopher Dresser and Walter Crane, who all wrote and lectured extensively about design theory. These are examples of designs that conform to Henry Cole and his circle's theories of correct taste. The jug is de decorated with celery, for which it is intended, so they would consider the design appropriate. The wallpaper, designed by Owen Jones, has the kind of flat geometric pattern deemed appropriate for a flat surface. The tile designed by Pugin reflects his admiration for Gothic design, which he associated with the Christian values of a pre-industrial age. He believed that a nation's art was a symptom of its moral health. Decoration for walls, textiles and flooring should also be flat, always be flat rather than three-dimensional. The Granville chair was designed by Edward Welby Pugin, Augustus Pugin's son. The form is simple and functional, and what Pugin regarded as honest. The functional elements are not disguised, but they're central to the design. The chair clearly shows the link between Pugin's precepts and those of the arts and crafts movement later in the century. We hold a number of wallpaper designs by Owen Jones, who was another key figure in the design reform movement. He was a leading architect and designer who was asked to decorate the interior of the 1851 Great Exhibition building. He was also instrumental in the founding of the South Kensington Museum along with Henry Cole. He travelled widely researching different styles of design and was particularly inspired by Islamic art. Jones's book, The Grammar of Ornament, published in 1856, attempted to categorise types of design by style and period and became hugely influential. His design principles became part of the teaching framework for the schools of design. He developed a whole language of design and colour theory, one element of which was that all ornaments should be based on geometric construction. Jones's design precepts differed from Pugin's in that he was motivated by commercial as well as aesthetic concerns, 
and one of his aims was to improve the status of British decorative art, including wallpapers overseas. The register's designs allow us to trace changes in style and the influence of different design movements. Around 1860, ideas about the links between fine and decorative art began to change in a way that had a profound effect for the development of style. The activities of art furnishers promoted a new attitude towards design by producing furniture that was thought to have artistic content. At first, this was a, mon a mono minority taste promoted by people like William Morris and his associates, but by the end of the century, the term artistic became a signal of the latest in design. Morris was a key campaigner in the movement to reform design and was strongly influenced by Pugin. Like Pugin, he associated good design with moral values and believed in the intrinsic value of hand craftsmanship, the value of art for everyone the importance of pleasure in work and the democratisation of work. We have at least 50 William Morris samples at the National Archives, including Trellis, shown here, which was the first wallpaper design by Morris, Ma Marshall, Faulkner & Co, set up by Morris with members of the Pre-Raphaelite group. Trellis was designed by Morris for the Red House, his first home with his new wife, Jane Burden. The house was described by the artist Edward Byrne Jones as, as the beautifulest place on earth. The birds for the design were drawn by the architect of the Red House, Philip Webb. We also hold a number of original Morris & Co designs, including the furniture fabric design on the left. Walter Crane was one of the key designers associated with the aesthetic movement, as well as being one of the driving forces behind design reform. We hold a number of his wallpaper designs. Crane became the first president of the Arts and Crafts Exhibition Society, formed in 1887, and head of the Royal College of Art in 1897. He began designing wallpapers in 1874, after his name was suggested to Metford Warner, the director of Jeffrey & Co, by the designer Bruce Talbot. He subsequently became one of Jeffrey & Co's most important designers. Crane was a campaigning socialist who believed passionately that handicrafts were equal in beauty and value to what were termed the fine arts. Swan, Rush and Iris was one of his earliest designs for wallpaper, intended as a dado, and was created in 1875. The pictorial quality reflects his belief that ordinary objects for the home should be regarded on the same level as paintings that might hang in galleries. From the late 1860s onwards, the aesthetic movement, which championed art for art's sake, became hugely popular. The volumes of representations are full of designs that use the aesthetic movement symbols of sunflowers, peacocks, blue and white china, Japanese fans, and furniture ebonized in imitation of Japanese style. The wallpaper shown on the top right by Bruce Talbot won a gold medal at the International Exhibition in Paris in 1878. Talbot was one of the most prolific and influential designers of the aesthetic movement, designing furniture and metalwork as well as wallpapers and fabrics. We have a number of samples of his work at the National Archives. Moving on from the work of the design reformers, at the end of the 19th century and into the beginning of the 20th century, we can begin to see Art Nouveau designs being registered. The registered designs have been underused as a resource for the study of design history, 
and one possible reason for this is the difficulty in attributing designs. They were registered by the copyright holder, known as the proprietor, who was usually the manufacturer or retailer rather than the designer. Attributing designs can be quite labour-intensive, involving cross-references with examples of work held in other collections and research in the archives of manufacturers. Liberties commissioned work by many of the top aesthetic designers of the period, but they were always registered by Liberty and sold under the Liberty name. They didn't advertise who their designers were. This spoon was designed by Archibald Knox for Liberties, possibly to celebrate the coronation of Edward VII. Attribution was possible by finding an example of the finished product held at the British Museum. The unassuming-looking Thebe stool was also registered by Liberties and became something of a style classic, selling in huge numbers. The textiles you see here show the move away from formal geometric patterns towards far more free-flowing designs. Geometric and abstract patterns start to appear in the early 20th century. It's a hundred years since the Amiga workshops were founded by the painter, designer and critic Roger Fry in July 1913, although many of the designs created still look strikingly modern today. The designers who worked for Amiga were almost all fine artists, including Vanessa Bell, Duncan Grant and other members of the Bloomsbury Group and they introduced an avant-garde domestic and artistic style to domestic design. The Amiga workshops registered a number of textile designs for copyright in July 1914, just before the outbreak of the First World War. Maud, designed by Vanessa Bell, is a printed linen and is thought to have been named after the society figure Lady Maud Cunard. The Amiga design set a fashion for abstract patterns in textiles, and this is reflected in designs registered in the name of Gabrielle Chanel, a French citizeness, better known as Coco Chanel, including this lightweight woolen silk fabric registered in February 1929. The 1930s saw the rise in the popularity of Art Deco, with its use of strong colours and angular geometric shapes, like Surfers, registered in April 1937, which shows women in fashionable costumes surfing on lilos. There are many different aspects of the register designs that would be worthy of further research, and one of these is the effects of empire, colonialism and international trade more generally on design and on the markets themselves. There are many examples of interpretations of foreign design by British manufacturers, as in this wallpaper registered by Hugh D. Fisher & Co. in 1875, and the textile in the style of Chinese batik, registered by Alexander Drew & Son in 1883. At the same time, companies such as the Lagos Stores Limited in Liverpool were importing textiles from Africa, and other companies were busy exporting textiles back into the colonies. These design records have accumulated in an organic way, added to the volumes as they were brought into the designs registry to be copyrighted. This means that as well as work by major designers, there are hundreds of thousands of designs that give a unique insight into the tastes and preoccupations of ordinary people, what they had in their homes and what they chose to wear. Unlike designs held by museums or galleries, 
they haven't been collected or curated on the basis of decisions about the historical or cultural significance of the artefacts. The designs give an amazing insights into the kinds of small ephemeral items people must have had in their home, covering everything, everything from clay pipes, bird cages and candlesticks, to laundry blue, soap and numerous designs, designs for board games. There are designs for toys, musical instruments and all kinds of gadgets. It's also possible to see social developments reflected. For example, around the time that the Postal Service was first introduced in the UK, there's a flurry of related designs, including a post-box-shaped perfume bottle registered by Eugene Rimmel, a post-box cigar cabinet and a clock letterbox. There are many commemorative items reflecting important events. For example, the Gladstone for the Million Plate, marking Gladstone's election as Prime Minister, and designs to mark the 1851 Great Exhibition, as well as memorabilia related to the Crimean and Boer Wars. This jug was produced in the year that Thomas Carlyle died. The designs continue until 1991, and although the later designs are sometimes less striking, as the representations submitted were often black and white photographs, there's enormous potential to research this later period, which I haven't investigated myself in any depth yet. I hope I've given you a snapshot of what's a huge and fascinating record series with many different potential avenues for research. And please do get in touch if you'd like to know any more about the designs. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives, rights reserved. It is available for reuse under the terms of the Open Government Licence.